0: Welcome back to the 156th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including free speech is all the rage nowadays, and the New York Times had to jump in and give their opinion. A interesting article about how the affirmative action decision is actually affecting a few different fellowships at a law firm, and... The counterintuitive idea of cutting taxes and how it actually helps the upper class more than the lower class. (laughs) And we, of course, will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So, is there a acceptable limit to the freedom of speech that you were gifted? that you were told you had from the U.S. Constitution? And yes, I'm being a little bit you know, snippy there because you have the right to free speech outside of government, but how about the free speech that you were insured in this particular government if you live inside the United States? Where does your ability to say what you want and say it as you please Come into conflict with other people's want to be comfortable. I think that this is a very interesting framing of the question. It's something that I ran into in college a lot, and I think that it doesn't necessarily portray the entire situation. But I want to know your opinions. Throw it down there in the comment section. Love to hear what you have to say. All right, let's jump to our first article that comes from the New York Times. Behold, the free speech chutzpah of the Republican Party. So there are obviously the author here is a, more of an opinion piece is, is coming at it from his point of view. And you can kind of tell by the title chutzpah, he's calling out the Republican Party for wanting free speech in some instances, but not wanting it in others. And I feel as though it could be a little bit disingenuous. But there are certain parts of his argument that we need to take on that, you know, actually there is something there and maybe the right is more willing to allow certain types of free speech rather than the other and this is something that is dangerous no matter who it is it doesn't matter if you're the left doesn't matter if you're the right doesn't matter if you're the centrist not allowing freedom of speech is basically not allowing freedom of thought in the public and if you're not allowed to spread your thoughts in the public and have a serious conversation Well, you know, that's a totalitarian regime that is suppressing ideas from flourishing within their society. So there is a certain importance, if you might say, to this conversation. So let's talk about what the chutzpah is or what the situation really is that is, you know, being called out here. Quote, now in an extraordinary display of chutzpah, Representative Jim Jordan, Republican of Ohio, and fellow Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee have accused Democrats of violating the First Amendment rights of election deniers. In June 26, 2023, interim staff reports, Jordan and his colleagues charged that the Biden administration, quote, concluded with big tech and misinformation partners to censor those who claimed that Trump won in 2020. The report Quote, the weaponization of the CISA, how a cybersecurity agency colluded with big tech and disinformation partners to censor Americans, makes the argument that the First Amendment recognizes that no person or entity has a monopoly on the truth and that the truth of the day can quickly become the misinformation of tomorrow. Labeling speech misinformation or disinformation can strip it of its First Amendment protection. As such, under the Constitution, the federal government is strictly prohibited from censoring Americans' political speech, end quote. So there are two aspects to this. There are certain people that are listening that will probably say, well, okay, yeah, but they were obviously wrong, and they shouldn't be spreading those sort of lies because it can cause something that happened, like on J6, and other sort of incidents where people are compelled to use other means than their free speech in order to get what they want. And I think that is a folly argument because at the end of the day, even if there is the possibility of that, there are already laws in place that do not advocate for violence, which, yes, does impinge on your free speech to some degree. But do you really need to have more restrictions, which is stopping them from even saying those sort of things when you already have a specific claim or a specific specific law that says they can't actually advocate to turn those thoughts and beliefs into palpable action that could end up hurting somebody. And then there's the other side to this, which is no matter what you believe, where the line is on free speech, which, I mean, yeah, I'm a free speech absolutist, you've probably heard this before, and if you can't tell already from the first few minutes, you understand where I'm coming from. But the fact that the government was directly colluding with big tech, and yes, I know, you're like, well, okay, there are certain things that shouldn't be said, blah, blah, blah. Yes, if you want to have that point of view, sure. I want to ask you a simple question, though. Do you use these big tech platforms to communicate ideas to people? Some people don't. Some people don't use these platforms, but anything. to scroll through their Instagram feed. But I ask you, if... You want to talk with somebody or you want to post your opinion out there. You feel like you have something to say. And then you find out one day later that actually, no, what you just said, what you just thought in your own private time that you were blasting out to the world, to your followers, to your friends, so on and so forth, is actually called mis- or disinformation. And not only is this mis- or disinformation claim coming from the company, but it actually is rooted in a government policy, then The government is directly affecting what you can and cannot say, even if it's implemented by a private company. That is absolutely absurd, especially in an age, because if this was just, you know, a crazy message board and things in the middle of the Internet where no one was paying attention, I highly doubt the Internet would self-censor it. I highly doubt that the Biden administration would care or even the Trump administration or any sort of government entity would care whatsoever. But it is because these platforms are the new public square, because these are the places where instead of having a yeller going out and showing you a newspaper or showing you the record of what this president has done or showing you how you know this one person did this one thing, blah, 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 instead of going out there in the town square and yelling about it and trying to change people's minds, now we do it on the internet. And not only do we do it on the internet for our local community, just our friends, but sometimes things go viral and they reach everybody across the internet. And is it okay? Is it acceptable that if you have an opinion that a lot of people resonate with it, it could go viral, but it gets labeled disinformation, it can get pulled or it can get put behind a, oh, this is a piece of disinformation kind of banner like they used to do on Twitter saying, are you sure you still want to see this or they'll have a flag down at the bottom? Is that okay that those sort of tools are being used by a company at the behest of the government? I would say no, just because, remember, governments are people. People make mistakes. And also, if there's a opposing party, if you are a libertarian and there comes in a big government kind of person into the bureaucracy, and they say, no, 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 we can't have this sort of tweet out there because it actually undercuts the power of the government to send out a certain program that could help a lot of people. We have to make sure that people that are advocating against this don't get to talk about it because this may mean that there's public skepticism and then this program, which will maybe save five or ten lives per day because of, blah, 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 different things that are being implemented. Well, no, we can't have people doubting it because we we really want this program to save those people. And then they start doing a moral calculus, and they're like, okay, well, we have to ban or at least limit that type of speech on social media. And they reach out, and they go forward, and the social media company says, oh, you are the government. You have the ultimate course of power. Of course, of course we will try to limit this type of speech. Anything with hashtag small government will be suppressed for the day or will have a flag in front of it. If there's information in there that is not a hundred percent legitimate or agreed upon by this board of people. So you see how this is a problem. And then when somebody else comes into office who is all about small government and there's a whole bunch of people online saying, Oh, yes, 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 big government is the way. We need to ensure that we're involved in a lot of people's lives. We need to make sure that we are actually aiding more people than we have before. We have to look through different tax returns and see who actually needs blah 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 the most that small government person would say no 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 that's not acceptable we can't have people advocating for that because if we advocate for more involvement in their lives then certain citizens are going to lose, lose the right to privacy and you know people can have personal convictions that will change as you go through these different administrations these different bureaucratic cycles and then if social media companies are used to cowtailing or want to cowtail in order to not get coerced or be sued or be over-regulated by the government they're probably going to enforce that political belief at the time and I think that's outrageous just because we know things change and we shouldn't let a government elected by a certain majority of the population have absolute control over every single thing that people say whether I agree with them or oppose them because guess what eventually it will be used against you. You may not think you care right now, but you may not think it will affect you, but eventually it will be used against you, period, full stop, even if it's in a minor way. Imagine you find yourself in the minority one day and you are getting censored or destroyed or your following is getting slowly stripped away from you online when that is your livelihood. Imagine you're a journalist. I'm just saying... You may not be a journalist. Maybe these arguments don't necessarily resonate with you. But think about the broader impact, even if you don't agree with what somebody is saying online. So there's a little bit of another argument that is presented here by a professor from Harvard. And I think it's a very interesting one. And I wanted to highlight it because I don't necessarily agree with it. But there are sentiments there that are probably kind of resonate with a certain segment of the population, and it's it's interesting to say the least. Quote, one of the underlying issues in the free speech debate is the unequal distribution of power. Paul Freeman, a political scientist at Princeton, sorry, so he's from Princeton, not Harvard, raised a question in reply to my email. I wonder if the century-long standard for why we defend free speech is that we need a fairly absolute marketplace of ideas to allow all ideas to be heard, with a few exceptions. Deliberated upon and that the truth will ultimately win out is a bit dated in this modern era of social media algorithms and most importantly profound corporate power while there has always been a corporate skew to speech Freimer argues in the modern era technology enables us to overwhelm and be drowned out uh, with different ideas. So I'll keep going, but it's interesting here that the core tenet of a lot of arguments that people make who are free speech absolutists or at least really strong on the free speech, which is let the free marketplace of ideas happen just like the free marketplace in the economy, in theory, that we should have. Let the ideas come to one another. They'll battle out the one that makes the most rational sense. People will be attracted to and eventually the truth will win out kind of idea. And then he says, well, yeah, but in a modern age, it won't necessarily work. I, I don't know if that's true. I think it's actually even more counterfactual because, yes, big tech companies can have algorithms that stop certain things from really blowing up. But if something is so true, if something is so profound and it really goes against the narrative and the companies try to suppress it, I would say that's even more argument as to why it will get shared around more. Does that mean that it will necessarily go through the algorithm to do that? No, maybe people do it in a roundabout way. Maybe there's a whole bunch of retweets. Maybe they're directly DMing it to people so they can directly DM to them. The fact that we have this communication technology which allows everybody to be connected and to circumvent some of these m- algorithm manipulations, I would argue that if something over even overcomes that, that even proves the fact that it is even more true because people are passionate enough to try to get around the algorithm. They don't just sit there and say, oh... I guess this post isn't resonating. They're like, no, I know this is the truth, and I'm going to get it out to people. So I, I think there's a certain part of his argument, which is, yes, of course, big tech has a lot of power, but he's lacking the, the follow-through, which is, yes, social media is a place for a lot of ideas to flow, but also it's a way for people to circumvent the, natu- the normal way that things operate. So I think he's losing that part of the, the picture, in my opinion. So let's go back to the quote, quote, how long are we hanging on to the protection of a hypothetical that someone will find the truth on the 40th page of a Google search or a podcast with no corporate backing? How long do we defend a hypothetical when the reality is so strongly skewed towards the suspe- suppression of the meaningful exercise of free speech? Farmer contended that we do seem to need regulation of speech in some form more than ever, I'm not convinced we can find a way to do it that would enable our society to be more just and informed. The stakes, the fragility of democracy, the, increasingly hate, the increasing hatred and violence on the base of demographic categories, and the health of our planet are extremely high to defend a single idea with no compromise. End quote. Okay, so... You see that logical leap that he just made there. He said, oh, all of these things, all of these things, the fragility of democracy, the increased hatred and violence and these different demographic groups, the health of our planet, all of these things are what we are costing. What are the potential costs of having free speech open and not really censored to some degree whatsoever. You see that logical leap that he makes in order to justify these sort of restrictions on free speech. Oh, well, we have to do it in order to protect our planet. We have to do it to decrease hatred between demographic groups. We have to do it in order to keep our democracy together. On um, the The planet one, I'm not going to necessarily fully address that one. I think it's stupid because we need to have... A lot of different ideas out there on how we're going to address these issues and if we limit speech to only one particular area it's like putting regulations on an industry saying you have to do it this way it limits innovation and new ideas stupid the the violence on the basis of demographic categories um yeah there i guess there could be something to that one a little bit i still don't believe that restricting speech is the way to do it Maybe actually having these communities come together and actually interact with the other side a little bit more and understand their side of the argument, which is actually more speech, could make it a little bit better. But no, we stay in our silos and our bubbles online rather than going out there and actually utilizing this beautiful resource which is communication with practically anybody. And then the one that is most frightening to me, the fragility of democracy. Democracy is meant to really emphasize the exchanging of ideas between different segments of the population in order to see which one wins out. Only it's done in an electoral form. It's done by two figureheads or multiple figureheads that represent a policy that the people can get behind. So... In limiting speech, you're limiting the possibility of the populace expressing itself and saying what kind of candidate they would possibly want to be the figurehead and what the possible policy platform could be. Now, the author doesn't give, or sorry, the professor here doesn't necessarily give specific mandates. So I'm not saying that he's advocating for limiting political speech, but it sounds like he's trying to do that. And though he doesn't give specific requirements it's most definitely one of those things where it's like hold on hold on hold on are you really saying that free speech is going to jeopardize our democracy i i think that those two go hand in hand and are actually extremely necessary in order to ensure our democracy thrives going forward even in this age where corporate power has a lot of control over what we see online so it's just a, a few different interesting points from the New York Times. I obviously don't agree with a lot of them, but I I think it's a conversation that at least should be brought up. And once again, the free marketplace of ideas, people like me will rebut them, even though I'm not as smart. There's probably somebody who could make a much more elegant argument and much more coherent and not spend nearly 17 minutes ranting about it. So let's jump to our second article that comes from the Washington Free Beacon. Law firms sued over diversity fellowship folds. So if you know what happened with the Supreme Court and the end of affirmative action, then you know that colleges are no longer supposed to you know, use race as a category on which they base their acceptance of the applicants that apply to those said colleges. Well, now some law firms and some other institutions that offer different fellowships are actually getting rid of some of the language on their websites and they are limiting the impact that race has on the application because they fear that this rule could actually inversely affect them as well because there are certain fellowships that were meant for people of minority status and so on and so forth, and they're afraid that the affirmative action firms are going to come after them and they're going to say, hey, 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 this is discrimination. You're specifically targeting a minority group. You're not allowing... A different group in there such as maybe females if you were to look at u.s demographics even though it's more likely males that would actually be discriminated against in that case even though there are more females in the u.s population and nowadays they're even more more educated than males but there's still that stereotype that females need to be empowered more so maybe males would be discriminated against or white students who are applying for the fellowship this sort of thing so I'll give you the the lowdown the first paragraph from the article so you can understand the basics a little bit. Quote, the law firm Morrison and Foster has quietly opened its diversity fellowship to white applicants in wake of a discrimination lawsuit by Edward Blum, the activist behind the Supreme Court case that outlawed affirmative action in college admissions. Before the lawsuit, the Keith Whitmore Fellowship for Excellence, Diversity, and Inclusion only considered members of underrepresented groups, including racial ethnic minority groups, and members of the LGBTQ plus community. According to a document describing the fellowship on the firm's website, about eight days after Blum's lawsuit was filed on August 30th, Morrison and Foster scrubbed the criteria of any reference of race or sexual orientation. The fellowship is now open to all students with a, quote, demonstrated commitment to promoting diversity. The new criteria state and who bring a diverse perspective to the firm, end quote. So you can see how they're shifting things around here, and they're now actually saying, okay, when you apply, if you're a person that cares about diversity and all these different you know, buzzwords, then say that to us. We're literally telling you here in the last line, we want people that bring a diverse perspective to the firm and de- demonstrate a commitment to promoting diversity, So they're basically saying to the people that are applying, tell us why you're diverse, but also tell us why you care about diversity, and then we can consider you, but we can't outright say that you are accepted or at least we're thinking about having you here because you are of a minority status. It's a little bit of a workaround that doesn't necessarily mean that they are breaking the law or they're breaking any Supreme Court decisions or they can get sued based on any grounds like that. So, you know, they're smart. They're a law firm. But, you know, it's it's really interesting to me that this is where we have gone since the affirmative action case. I honestly didn't think it would have as large of a ripple outside of the Supreme Court decision, mainly between, you know, school boards that or college boards that are accepting, or admission offices that are accepting people. I didn't think it would have this wide-ranging of an effect that it would actually start to destroy or at least limit some of these other diversity kind of fellowships or diversity hiring practices across the industry. And it's very interesting to see how far this will be taken. So, you know, obviously Edward Blum here, he's an activist who cares about these issues. And it's really, really going to be on these people who really care about this issue to keep pushing forward, and we'll see how far they can get. I think eventually there will be a wall where the Supreme Court is going to actually say, okay, in this private company instance or in this instance there's a certain exception, and then we'll start to see things change a little bit. But these activists are really pushing it to the boundary, and this is how they're using the judicial system in order to do it. And it's very, very cunning on their part. But like I said, I did not see it having such broad implications across the not just the education sphere, but also it will probably start going into private companies here soon if they continue to push this forward. But there is a little bit of pushback that is coming in the wake of this change and the potential lawsuit, which they may not actually be able to file now that they've changed the requirements for the fellowship. Quote, Perkins Cole, a vowed defendant of its fellowship, which is reserved for students of color, students who identify as LGBTQ+, and students with disabilities, Morris and Foster did not respond to requests for comment. Blum's lawsuits allege that both programs violate the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which banned racial discrimination in contracting. The law has been at the center of the civil rights complaints against many companies, including Amazon, Starbucks, Pfizer, in which companies they limit grants and fellowship to members of minority groups, though the Supreme Court's decision will not address private contracts directly. It did put corporations on the defensive and, in the eyes of many experts, indicates a willingness to strike down race-based programs outside of education, end quote. So that's exactly what I'm talking about here. Even though Perkins Cole is defending the program that they have, you see that some of these people are going to keep pushing. And you see that maybe there is a logical extent to which this could be used for private companies and private contracts between the employer and the employee. And we'll see how far this one goes. It would be a radical upending if we got rid of racial or gender or LGBTQ status, whatever you want to call it. Any of those standards, if they were to strip those from these different companies, these quota systems, it would be a radical change to the way that business is done. Currently. And when I say that, I don't mean that each company says, oh, yes, there is a hard quota of how many blah we have to have or how many blah we have to have. But there is an implicit understanding within these companies that, oh, we have to hire for diversity. And this could have a direct impact on Wall Street as well. This could actually, because we've also seen that BlackRock, even though they still care about, conscious conservative uh, conscious capitalism so on and so forth whatever word they're using nowadays they've pulled back from esg so we're starting to see a shift here we're starting to see the culture push back in the other direction and we'll see how far the bell swings and then it'll probably come back in the other direction but it's been about 20 years that we've been working towards this now so we'll see how long this swing of the bell is going to take all right, let's jump to our last article that comes from Common Dreams, the counterintuitive truth about tax codes. So there's two quotes that I want to read you from this one. I will make them extremely, extremely quick, I promise. So there are two premises that the author likes to start out with. One, income tax cuts for the morbid rich raise the nation's debt but do nothing else. Reagan's BS trickle-down claims, notwithstanding, tax cuts for the rich don't even stimulate economic growth. They just flatten billionaires' money bins and offshore accounts. And by flatten, I meant to say fatten. And because tax cuts on the rich are paid for by increasing the national debt, they're a drag on the economy. They make rich people richer, but they make the nation poorer. Two- Cutting income taxes on working class people, however, actually cuts their base pay over the long run. And paradoxically, when income taxes on working people go up, as they did in the 1930s through the 1960s, it generally leads to pay increases. The shocking and counterintuitive reality is something non-politicians, since FDR, has had the courage to explain. Wait a minute. I hear you saying... Cutting taxes on the rich people makes them richer, but cutting taxes on working-class people cuts their pay? What the F? Yes. So that's the two premises that he's working on here. And I will honestly give a a little bit more of a summary and an overview of what he says, and then I'll talk about this iron law of wages. But the reason I think that this doesn't necessarily hold true, because the argument he makes is, when an employer knows that this person is getting $40,000 right now in the current tax system. They are getting $40,000 after all the taxes are taken out. And now, when the taxes are cut, the employer says, okay, well, now they're getting $45,000 before, or sorry, after all their taxes are taken out. And we know that they'll accept $40,000. So we're actually going to cut their wages in order to get them back down to that $40,000 amount so we're actually cutting their wages but we're allowing them to have the same amount of money and we know that they can survive on that because they were doing it beforehand one this is implying that corporations are inherently greedy this is obviously born of a worldview that corporations are only going to focus on the money end of the spectrum and only on the raw numbers rather than understanding that hey People are actually making more money. Maybe they're more loyal to this company. Maybe they want to stay around and are willing to put in more time that we could promote internally rather than having to waste resources on going and find a headhunter because this person cares about the company more. There are lots of more factors here that actually play into the idea that it is financially beneficial for the company to retain these people and not take down their wages. Because guess what? If you directly take down their wages, then they may start working less. They may start not you know doing as much work when they're on the clock. They may start showing up late to work, and that's not financially beneficial to you. So there's a lot more to this equation than simply, ah, yes, corporations are evil, they are greedy, and they take the easy way to get that extra $5,000. Instead of saying, no, some corporations, they care about their people, and they understand that in doing so, they can actually get more productivity out of them, and they can actually get more cash out of them. So I feel like his worldview here, the author's worldview, is really, really being a little bit overly cynical about the operations of a corporation. Now, yes, big corporations do cut money. I'm not trying to say that's not the case. And maybe this does happen. But there are other factors there that could play into it. And to say that, hey, it's 100% going to happen. It doesn't 100% going to happen. I've worked for different corporations where when tax cuts came down the pike, they actually kept the wages in place. They actually sometimes raised the wages because they didn't want to buy Or They didn't have the ability to hire new people. They didn't want to train new people, but they wanted to keep the people that they had already trained and who had been there and who were loyal to the company, so they raised their wages a little bit. So there are obviously different perspectives on this one. But I want to read you this second quote about the iron law of wages. Quote, economist David Ricardo explained in his 1817 with the iron law of wages, laid out in his book One Principles of Political Economy and Taxation. Ricardo pointed out that in the working class labor market before tax income is pretty much irrelevant. Money people live on, the money that defines the marketplace for labor is take home pay or after tax income. But the rules for how taxes work are completely different for rich people. When taxes go down on rich people, they simply keep the money that they've saved with the tax cut. They use it to stuff larger wads of cash in their money bins. When taxes go up on them, They'll just raise their pay until they hit a confiscatory tax rate, which hasn't existed since the Reagan era. And they'll stop giving themselves raises and leave the money in their company. Well, okay, yes, that's fair. They'll probably increase their pay when the taxes are raised. Sometimes they can't necessarily do that. But also imagine... When they cut taxes, they say when they cut taxes that that money just gets shoved into different, you know, bank accounts or it gets sent over to a foreign bank account. Imagine it this way. If you have an extra $200,000 and... You are keeping it for yourself, and then the company has an emergency. Guess what? You can give them an emergency loan. Or maybe you have a second product idea, but you don't want to necessarily spend the company's money on R&D, but you're a really rich executive, so you can do a little bit of private R&D and maybe spin off another company. Yes, this is going directly against the trickle-down economics theory that the author is trying to hate on so much at the very end beginning of this article, but I do believe that there is something to it. The people that are at the top of the chain, they have gotten there for a specific reason. They have some sort of skill or talent. Maybe they see market opportunities, and maybe by having that little bit of extra money in their pocket, they could actually create new innovations, maybe create a new company. Think about Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos created Amazon, but he didn't just leave it there. With all the extra profits that they made, he reinvested it into Amazon Web Services, which hosts hosts, what, probably 70% of the internet at this point, a lot of different business projects and so on and so forth. He's streamlined a lot of shipping and he's forced UPS, FedEx, and the USPS to uh, take on some different tactics in order to keep up with Amazon's shipping policies. They've gone into biogenetics. They've created their own streaming platform, which has kept a little bit of pressure on in the market in order to make sure that Netflix and Hulu don't raise their prices too quickly. So, It's not as simple as the author is making it seem. And yes, I am not giving economic data, but neither is he. He's just quoting a lot of fancy information and giving examples of how this works out one way or the other. And I think that, you know, it's not necessarily 100% as simple as he makes it seem. I've said that like three times now, so let's just leave it there. Let's jump to our daily delight that comes from My Modern Met. The zoo has tiny holes so you can hold the otter's little hands. So did you know that otters actually hold hands while they are sleeping on the water? Quote, a TikTok video shows footage of the Kayu Absuru Marine Park in Tokyo and Dubai, the Dubai Aquarium. In both places, the otters seem to hang out in a clear enclosure with little ventilation soles. When visitors approach, the otters excitedly run towards the glass and stick their little paws through the holes. Not only do the creatures get to meet a new friend, but they also seem to love the hand rubs they get from the humans. So, you know, this is a practice that is, it's not only good for humans, it doesn't just make humans happy, but it also makes the happiness kind of live on with the otters as well because they actually love this and they do it in nature anyway, holding hands at least. Quote, only second to their adorable faces, a well-known characteristic of otters is that they hold hands while sleeping to keep them from drifting away from one another when they are floating on the river. While this serves a practical purpose in the wild, it is also a very cute scene that can melt even the coldest of hearts, end quote. If you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of these guys doing this in the zoo, or you want to read any of today's articles, there's a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the links to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine, and the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.